Thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for playing that wonderful song of heaven today, Holy, 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 and it's wonderful to hear that. If you'd turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6 as we go back to 1 Corinthians now, and uh, we hit chapter 6 here, and we're going to look at those first 11 verses. We actually are going only, only to do part of them today, but let me read them for you first of all, and we'll see this. Paul deals with uh, lawsuits among Christians in this uh, passage today, but reading in, in Jesus' name, it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? <laughs> do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the, in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at, with, with, at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. <laughs> Heavenly Father, as we pray so often, we pray it again. Sanctify us in this word. Set us apart. Show us what you want, Lord. <laughs> you speak to us, O Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. There was an inmate who filed a $5 million lawsuit against himself. He claimed that he violated his own civil rights by getting arrested. Then he asked the state to pay because he had no income in jail. I want to pay myself $5 million, but ask the state to pay it on my behalf since I can't work and I'm a ward of the state. The judge was not impressed with his ingenuity <laughs> and dismissed this, the case as frivolous. There was a minister and his wife who sued a guide dog school for $160,000 after a blind man learning to use a seeing eye dog stepped on the woman's toes in a shopping mall. Southeastern Guide Dogs Incorporated, a 13-year-old guide dog school and the only one of its kind in the southeast, raises and trains seeing eye dogs at no cost to the visually impaired. The school is located about 35 miles south of Tampa. The lawsuit was brought by Carolyn Christian and her husband, the Reverend William Christian. Each of them sought $80,000. The couple filed suit 13 months after this happened. The toe was stepped on and reportedly broken by a blind man who was learning to use his new guide dog, Freddie, under the supervision of an instructor. And they were practicing at a shopping mall. And according to the witnesses, Mrs. Christ Miss Christian made no effort to get out of the blind man's way because she wanted to see if the dog would walk around her. A woman in Israel sued a TV station and its weatherman for $1,000 after he predicted a sunny day and it rained. 
The woman claimed the forecast caused her to leave home lightly dressed. As a result, she caught the flu. She missed four days of work, spent $38 on medication, and suffered stress. She won. Now, I could keep going. (laughs) It's obvious we live sometimes in a sue-happy world. (laughs) Children suing parents, students suing teachers, players suing coaches. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, it also gets into the church. As we see here with Paul, he's dealing with a problem of lawsuits among Christians. And he deals with it here in this passage with the people in Corinth. The lawsuits that I just read to you, and I just read a few of them for you, seem frivolous. But God has Paul point out how frivolous lawsuits truly are among believers. There were two Bible smuggling groups that were suing each other a number of years ago. I couldn't help but wonder, as these two Bible smuggling, people that were bringing Bibles to people, they were suing each other. I wonder if they had spent any time reading the Bibles that they were bringing to people. The Apostle Paul seems to change the subject here a little bit. If you look back and we remember in chapter 5, he's talking about immorality and lust. And the problems in the church at Corinth. And he deals with a very serious case of incest that was widely known in the congregation there. In the closing part of chapter 6, he returns to that subject, as we'll see in a couple weeks. And he deals with things that are happening with Christians' relationships to the problem of prostitution in Corinth. But in between, we have this little section that deals with lawsuits among Christian brothers and sisters. Perhaps you might be wondering, well, what in the world is Paul doing here? What what has this got to do with lust and sin? And the answer is, of course, that it has everything to do with it because it's a form of lust very often. A lot of lawsuits arise out of greed and out of covetousness, out of a desire to retain certain material benefits. And therefore, a lawsuit sometimes is an attempt to force another person to yield what, to what you regard as a, a, a right, but is really another form of lust. The dictionary defines lust as any obsessive craving or desire. And you can see how someone who's greedy and grasping and determined to hang on to his rights, especially regarding material matters, is guilty of some form of lust. The problem here is of, very often is of making things more important than people. <laughs> the first 11 verses divide very nicely here. We're going to see the first thing the Apostle says is that lawsuits among Christians are foolish. Secondly, we're going to see that lawsuits are shameful among Christians. And finally, Paul says that they even raise suspicions as to the spiritual state of the ones involved. (laughs) Let's look at verses 1 through 3, first of all, and look at this part here. Paul says that these lawsuits are foolish. And obviously what was happening here is that the people of Corinth were bringing lawsuits, dragging them before the Roman courts, and having all their quarrels, all their dirty laundries, washed out in public (laughs) and settled by a secular court. And the Apostle Paul says this is foolish among believers. 
And he has two reasons for it. First of all, he implies that it is an act of audacious boldness to do something like that. Dare any one of you having a grievance against his brother take it to a law court to settle, he says. His clear implication that this is is an audacious act. It's an outrageous act. It's bold. It's a daring thing to do. And Paul implies that, of course, by the words that he uses there, that one who does something like this is uncaring. He's reached a point where he doesn't care what anybody else thinks or feels, and he's acting regardless of the injuries that may be done to others with what he does. Secondly here, Paul suggests in two questions that he uses. He, accepts, he suggests that anybody who does such a thing is really acting in ignorance. He uses questions. He says, do you not know that the church is going to judge the world? Or do you not know that the church is going to judge angels? In this chapter, there are six times where the apostle asks the questions, do you not know? This is a little quiz he gives to our our theological knowledge here. And he always bases our behavior on what we know or what we don't know about theology. Could we answer these questions if they were asked of us? They imply a certain amount of knowledge that the Corinthians should have had. And perhaps we should have as believers. And surely he's referring to the passages both in the Gospels and the Epistles where we're clearly told that when the Lord returns, when he comes back with his saints, we're going to share the throne of judgment with him. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. And therefore, we are entering into judgment with Him. Now, just how we'll do that, we're never really ever told. (laughs) We are told, we're not told whether we are assigned a little throne to sit on, (laughs) or have a certain number of people to come with us, or whether we divide up according to the alphabet, and I doubt that we do that. We are, however, to enter into the mind and heart of God as He examines the hearts and the motives, the thoughts and the innermost desires and the urges of men. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that we are not to judge before the Lord comes. The Lord who will examine the motives and the hidden things of the heart. But we are learning how to do that. And that's the point that Paul's raising here. He doesn't mean to put down the systems of judgment. He doesn't mean to put down the justice system justice system that's practiced in our day or any day. Paul admired. He honored Roman law. He himself called upon it for defense on occasion. But he's saying that human law, by its very nature, has to deal with the trivial, the superficial things with actions and not with the urges and the deep motives, the hidden desires and motives of the heart. If you're familiar with the law courts, and I know some of you are, (laughs) you know that's true. The law specifically prohibits the jury or the judges or the defense attorneys or anyone from probing too deeply into the motives. Intent has to be established. They cannot presume to judge why people act 
the way they do. The law is restricted to judging the actions as to whether they are injurious to others or not. Therefore, human law is at a rather shallow level of judgment compared to God's law. Paul is saying if you are learning during the course of your life, and presumably we ought to be learning, how to go deeper than actions, how to understand what is going on deep in the psyche of individuals and why they act the way they do, what is wrong and what is right about those feelings, those urges, those desires within you, then surely you ought to be competent to judge these simple cases with the actions of human beings among yourselves without taking them to the courts of law. We ought to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit and the Word. That's the key. That's what we need, isn't it? That's what He's pointing them to. That's what we have at the forefront. I love this next slide if you look at it and peanuts a little bit. Charles Schultz brings out things very well sometimes. There's no better teacher than the Holy Spirit and no better text than God's Word. All the words that I've been saying and going through with all of this, it's all meant, and Paul's pointing them, you need to get back to what God wants. And he's pointing that out to them. And then he actually notes these things because they didn't have the Word of God bound like we do today as such like this. But they had it shared with them and the the apostles and the teachers were bringing that. And he says that word, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? (laughs) Think about that. (laughs) There are two references in the New Testament to the judgment of angels. The first one is 2 Peter 2.4. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. And then, excuse me, in the little book of Jude, we're also told about it, Jude 1.6. The angels that did not keep their own position, but have been kept by him in eternal chains until the judgment of the great day. Paul's argument is that it is foolish to have lawsuits between brothers and sisters in Christ. I do not think that he means that Christians are never to go to law. Sometimes that's impossible to avoid in our world. If a lawsuit's brought against you, it may be necessary for you to defend it. And in certain cases, at least, this may be the only way that justice can be brought about. And certainly Paul is not saying that it's impossible or wrong for Christians to settle claims with non-Christians before courts of law. It's between believers that it's wrong to go to the law, the secular law courts. Paul himself on one occasion stood on his rights as a Roman citizen. And he appealed to appear before the court of Caesar to have his case settled there. It indicates that it's not always wrong for a Christian to go to the law. But Paul is not through yet. He says that lawsuits between brothers in Christ are shameful. If you look at verses 4 through 8. 
There was a cartoon in Christianity Today many years ago that was setting was on a Sunday morning and on the church platform as a soloist. He's about to sing to the whole congregation. As the pianist prepares to play the introduction, he takes the microphone in his hand and he says, I'd like to share a song with you that the Lord gave me a year ago. And even though he did give it to me, any reproduction of this song in any form without my written consent will constitute infringement of the copyright law, which grants me to sue your pants off. Praise God. Quite a, quite a thing, huh? Shocking. <laughs> you can almost hear the shock tone in Paul's voices here. He can't believe that these Corinthians are actually forsaking the cause of Christ to this degree. <laughs> That they're bringing one another to court. There's four things here as he shows the foolishness, or sorry, the shamefulness of lawsuits among Christians. If then, he says, um, first of all, lawsuits are shameful because they stoop to a lower level of judgment. If then you have courts for common life matters, do you seat as judges such men as are accounted nothing in the judgment of the church? Why, why, do, you, why do you do this, Paul is questioning. And what does he mean by those who are nothing or those who are less esteemed by the church? It's a reference to secular judges who are presiding over the courts. He doesn't mean to dishonor them. That's not what Paul's bringing about here. What he's bringing about is the difference between God and between God's law and man's law. What he's saying is that a secular judge who doesn't understand the relationship of one Christian to another and has no concept of the fatherhood of God and the family of life of believers who does not understand that we are members of one another, who does not see the relationship to Christ, is therefore not to be highly esteemed as a judge of matters concerning believers. That's all he's saying. And then he goes further yet. He says these judgments and these lawsuits between believers ignore a possible alternative that could be adopted. What are you going to do if this should happen to you? If you have a disagreement with someone or you have an agreement with someone who's a fellow believer in Jesus and he ends up owing you money. And he has the money to pay, but he chooses to use it for other reasons. Well, the world says, take him to court. Take him to the law. That's what courts are for, to force him to pay the money that he's agreed to pay. You can get your rights that way. But that's the very thing the apostle says is not right for a Christian to do. Lawsuits are shameful because you're passing by an alternative that God has. God's alternative. Can it be that there's no man among you wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood? Why do you not select somebody in the congregation who understands the whole matter of relationships among Christians and ask him, perhaps a group of people, to decide for you? I'm amazed at how little we practice this today sometimes. Instead, what we do is we boast about our rights rather than looking at the wisdom of God and His Word. The Apostle's point here is not that we look to our rights, 
but rather, again, that people have available far more competent people in the church to settle these things rather than a secular law or court because we understand the things of God or hopefully we understand God's law a bit more. And therefore, he suggests that. And then the third thing Paul says here in verse 7, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is a defeat for you. It's a defeat. It's a defeat for Christianity as a whole. No matter who wins the lawsuit in the secular court, what happens to the gospel of Christ? It's going to suffer. Can you imagine? I don't know what happened between those two Bible smuggling organizations. But whoever won, it was going to cause a poor witness, wasn't it? It really doesn't make a difference who wins in those cases. As far as the cost of Christ is concerned, it it's degraded in the eyes of the watching world. No matter who wins the case, people are going to get turned off. Or they're going to say, just look at them. What a lawsuit says to the watching world is you Christians, you don't, know, you, don't, you don't even know any better. You don't have anything different than we have. You have to have a judge come and settle matters between you and force one another to do the right thing. What in the world does Christianity have to offer to us? We live in a culture that is so bent on asserting our rights. We hear things like this. I have my rights. I don't have to take that from you. I want what is coming to me. Just watch a football game sometime. Or go to a basketball game. Do people yell at the referee? They want the rights. That person had the right to that. We do those things in our world. You know what it made me think about? It, it made me think about marriage. Do we ever do this in marriage? Our rights? <laughs> the unity candle is a wonderful picture, by the way. We have the light up here, but you ever do the unity candle? It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? They put the two candles together. They light the one to be one in Christ. But you know what the most important thing is you do? You turn and blow out your own candle. Because when problems happen in marriage, why do problems happen? Because we try to relight our own candle again. And it's the same thing that we do with one another. In the movie Seabiscuit, which is a wonderful story of a horse named Seabiscuit, became known as one of the greatest race, race horses of all time during the Depression especially, um, but before one of the races, um, Seabiscuit had been well established as a winner. Tom, <clears throat> Tom Smith was the trainer, and Red Pollard, who was the uh, uh, um, jockey, they discussed the race strategy, and they understood that Seabiscuit would get way out in front and had a very competitive nature, so they wanted to hold Seabiscuit back till near the end and then let Seabiscuit go and win the race. No problem and things that way. Well, the owner of the, the, the racehorse was named Charles Howard. And in this particular race, the strategy fell apart because Red Pollard, the, the um, jockey, 
was illegally fouled, fouled during the race. And he got so upset that he abandoned the strategy and he took after the horse and the jockey that had fouled, fouled him and raced hard to try and get to that person instead of waiting to let the horse go at the end. And as a result, he was so bent on revenge that the, the other horse in the race just passed the two of them by. <laughs> and he didn't win the race. And after the race, Tom Smith, the rate trainer, is just furious. And Red, because Red didn't follow the game plan. And Red replies over and over again, but he followed me. He followed me. What was I supposed to do? <laughs> and finally, the owner, Charles Howard, speaks up and he says, Red, what are you so mad about? <laughs> If we just followed the thing, we can claim our own rights. But that person did me. Mom, she touched me. You know, it sounds funny when we say those things, but that's exactly what happens when we do these things that way, when we claim our own rights. We may feel that we have our own rights, but I want to tell you something. The truth is, no, we don't. You see, our job is not to see that every wrong we suffer, whether it's imagined or real, be brought to justice no matter what. So often we think the application to ourselves ought to be our first priority. But Paul challenges us to think differently. He challenges us to think of Jesus Christ and the gospel. He challenges us to look at the bigger picture. Paul tells the church at Corinth that they had already lost. They had already lost because they focused on their own rights. Because when you focus on your own rights, you lose sight of your testimony. It's Paul's conclusion that it's better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. As a Christian, we must understand that there's a watching world. People are turned off when they see believers fighting each other in open, aggressive ways. You know what their conclusion can be? (laughs) You Christians are no better than we are. There's nothing different about you. (laughs) You don't have anything to offer. And they come to that conclusion all in the name of our wanting our rights. And the truth is, is that we are to be, we're to be a desirable alternative We must be willing to be wronged rather than to having to be right. Isn't that what Paul's questions are? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Is self-protection and self-gain that important? Our true purpose is much higher than wrangling over a property line. We should not be concerned, more concerned about our rights than being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You see, the real tragedy is not the loss of our rights. The real tragedy is lost people who remain lost as a result of going to court. The real tragedy is the church not functioning as it ought because we can't forgive one another. Dr. H.A. Ironside tells of an incident in his own life as a Christian when he was only eight years old. His mom mom took him to a meeting of the brethren 
who were discussing some kind of difficulty among themselves. And evidently there was some terrible injustice that one had felt others had done. And young Harry Ironside didn't know what the trouble was, but it was clear that they were deeply disturbed. He said that one man stood up and shook his fist in that meeting. He said, I don't care what the rest of you do. I want my rights. That's all I want. I just want my rights. (laughs) And there was an old half-deaf Scottish brother, he writes, that was sitting in the front row. And he cupped his hand behind his ear and he asked the man, Aye, brother, what's that ye say? And the fellow said, Well, all I said is that I want my rights. That's all. The old man said, Your rights, brother? Is that what you want? Your rights? Why, the Lord Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs. And he got them. Harry Ironside said, I'll always remember how that fellow stood transfixed for a little while. And then he dropped his head and he said, you're right, brother, you're right. Settle it in any way you like. And in a few moments, the whole thing was settled. What we should never forget is that as believers, we're called to demonstrate a different lifestyle before the world. One in which we are ready to surrender our personal rights for the cause that we serve. Paul will develop this more and more throughout 1 Corinthians. There's nothing more characteristic of a believer than his willingness to surrender even at his own cost and hurt. To surrender some personal right so that the cause of the gospel may prevail. See, all of this is just simply to give us that picture of Jesus Christ Himself. Paul would write of it in Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ would come and humble Himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So that you and I could have the right to become a child of God. That's the best news there ever is. Can you imagine if Jesus came to this world and exuded, exerted His rights as the Creator God? <laughs> Instead, He humbled Himself and took our sin upon Himself so that you and I could have eternal life. I've spewed a lot of words today. <laughs> I've thrown a lot of things out there, but the most important thing that Paul brings us to again is Jesus Christ. We've got a few other verses to cover. We'll do that next week. We'll look at the wonderful things that Christ has brought for us who believe and how He brings them right back to us and reminds the Corinthians and reminds you and me that we can be children of God. And we can be ambassadors for Him. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And again, Lord, forgive me for getting in the way at times. But I thank you that you have these things that point us again to what the forgiveness you can bring and how you gave of yourself. Help us to see other people as so important, to see them as souls that need you, Jesus, that need 
that wonderful gift that true life is in you. I pray these things in your name, Jesus, and I look forward to you coming again. And even as we sing of your first coming here in a bit, may the reality of Christmas, may the reality of the truth of who you are sink in deeper and deeper. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.